Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast today is January 17th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by Simon Belanger. Simon, how are you doing? Are you like eight feet under snow right now. This is the most snowfall I can recall in a long, long time. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the official figures in Ottawa, it's like 41 or 42 centimeters. And just looking at it, it looks like that. So it uh, it just happened in a few hours too. This is a serious one. And I know it's bad here in Toronto, but I saw like a figure of how much more snowfall the east side is getting. So you're probably, yeah, you're probably feeling that. So let's record this and then get the uh, get the shovels out. U.S. CPI came out, the Consumer Price Index, for December. It's been something that we've been tracking probably every month now, and more of the same here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they came out and it reached 7% in December. The Canadian data should be coming out either this week or next week. It's usually a bit a week or two after the the U.S. data. The 7% increase was actually the highest increase since 1982. So it is definitely important to take note. It was in line with expectations from economists. I know we've talked quite a bit about inflation in the past year and it's everywhere it's in the news everywhere you look everyone you talk to it seems like inflation is is a word on everyone's mind and i wanted to use this as a reminder that official figures are fine for baseline but they are not a good indicator of what you are seeing on an individual basis for inflation and i've mentioned and we've talked about this before to really get a sense of how prices are going up for you Look at what your recurring expenses are every month and how that cost is going up. It might be more than 7% or it might be less. In my view, that's really what inflation is and how you should measure it to understand how it, it impacts you. Because even you and I, right, we could live in the same area, but we eat different things. And inflation just on the food we eat. It could be completely different for both of us because maybe I eat more meat, maybe you do, or vice versa. So I think that's just something important to keep in mind when people see those official figures. Make sure you crunch the number just to understand how it impacts you. Yeah, or like if you're a commuter, the rise of gasoline prices far exceeds whatever CPI print that we're going to see. So I think that's a good point and probably a good thing to do overall is just track your month over month and uh, you'd be amazed at how much stuff you you could cut back on as well like from a personal finance perspective you know it's the old adage across like business like if you don't measure it you'll never improve it and so if you don't measure it then how are you supposed to even really know how you're doing with personal finance so i think it's probably a pretty good idea to begin with yeah exactly visa and amazon so if we rewind a little bit ago, I was telling you guys about how Amazon basically said in the UK, for the UK Amazon customers, they can no longer use Visa on the platform. And this was supposed to take place, be effective in two days from now on January 19th. On a statement they said today, as of recording, this change, quote, will no longer take place. I love it. Like, dude, didn't I keep saying like, I don't know, man, they keep, there just seems like a power stretch. 
the move was interpreted by experts as a way to, you know, to get lower fees, more bargaining power, or potentially go like on a better deal with lower take rates from MasterCard. A lot of that was speculation. Amazon says they'll continue to accept payments in the UK from Visa credit cards, reversing the ban that was announced in November. So yeah, it was November that I was was covering this. In an email to customers, Amazon said it was, quote, working closely on a potential solution that will enable customers to continue using their Visa credit cards on amazon.co.uk. What do you think here? Like, I'm really not surprised. It seemed like a like a bully tactic. Yeah, it's not surprising from Amazon. Uh, definitely, I had also a suspicion that it was probably a power play, but then we saw some news that they were even offering people some incentives, some money to switch over to the, uh, I think the Amazon MasterCard just uh, less than a month ago. So it was kind of hard to say, like, are they really being serious here or just flexing their muscles even more to get concessions from Visa? So I guess it was the the latter here. They were really trying to flex their muscles and trying to to get a better um, better deal with Visa in terms of accepting those credit cards. Not surprising the outcome. I mean, Visa is just so present. Obviously, MasterCard is as well, but just taking one or the other off your platform did not seem like the best idea for Amazon. And there have been some takes about Amazon and some like recent missteps, some questionable decisions, AWS outages. And I tend to agree. I'm like, what? Bezos do this? I don't know the answer to that. And I know he's still involved, but like there's been some bad moves, man. And this is one of them. Yeah, but speaking of Bezos, remember what he when he went on the Blue Origin flight and he was like thanking all the the Amazon workers and like made these comments that were not yeah. really well placed when people are like struggling. So insensitive. So I mean, it's not like he sometimes also has errors in judgment. So, uh, yeah. But again, that was that was Bezos already moved on, Bezos. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, making those comments. So, uh, I don't know. It's just speculation at this point. We'll, we'll never actually know. A big clothing line company here in Canada released earnings. And let's chat about that because I know we're both very interested in this business right now. Yeah, definitely. So Ritzia released their Q3 2022 earnings. Again, a bit of a weird schedule here. Before I get started on the earnings, I actually sent out a tweet this weekend where I wanted uh, people to let me know just what they thought about their clothing, whether, you know, were they expensive, good quality, what was a customer experience whether they were repeat customers, whether it was, you know, some of our listeners that are women that enjoy their clothes or not, or people like you, Brayden, who were just saying like, oh, my girlfriend said this, or my spouse said this. My wife does shop there and she does like their clothes, but I just wanted to get a general sense of uh, what people kind of thought about the brand without that being super scientific. And uh, so far, the general feel is that, you know, they're not cheap items. It tends to be for a, a younger demographic, I think, as well, is the sense I got. And um, I think it's kind of, it's pretty positive overall, but uh, definitely the price is uh, seems to be a bit of a sticking issue for some. Well, I think that they're positioning themselves in a way where they are not the most expensive clothing on the block, 
but in no way can they be mistaken for fast fashion. You know, like they're well and above that price point. And the quality is far and above that lower price point as well. The feedback that seemed to be consistent on your thread, which by the way, I thought was was clever that you tweeted that out, was a lot of what I had said that my girlfriend said, which was like, the quality is good. And for the most part, like the pieces you buy are solid, but then there'll also be like some super high margin t-shirt that they just throw in there as well. And that's probably where they make all their money and just like some of these one-off items, like a t-shirt for $80. Whereas like some of the more staple pieces they sell in there are actually really good value. Yeah, exactly. And I'll go over the earnings here, but I'll announce it now. Definitely in the next month, I'll want to, to review this one. I'm sure, Brayden, you'll want to chime in into that. So I know that's one that's been requested a lot. So I'll just say it. I want to do that. Before we go in, this is this is ticker ATZ, right? I believe so. Um, I didn't even add it, but uh, I think you're right. It's ticker yeah ATZ on the Toronto Stock Exchange for those who are maybe familiar with the company, but not familiar with the stock. Yeah, exactly. So now we'll just look at what their Q3 earnings look like. So net revenue increase uh, by 62.9% to $453.3 million. That's compared to Q3 2021. E-commerce revenue increased 46.9% to $148 million. Again, compared wow. to last year. <laughs> Those are big numbers. They are big numbers. And one that's going to be interesting is actually a bit more down the line. Uh, E-commerce revenue actually accounted for 32.6% of net revenues in Q3, which was down from 36.2% last year. But again, let's remember their quarter ended on November 28, 2021. And this was before Omicron. This was when things were pretty much as open as they had been in what since the pandemic started overall. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I think the the figure is actually pretty encouraging that they kept a lot of that online traffic despite, you know, uh, things reopening. That was also reflected in their retail revenue, which increased uh, 72% to 300 305.3 million from Q3 2021 again. Their US revenue, I think this is the most interesting, increase 115% to 198.7 million. Yeah, and their Canadian revenue increased 37% to 254.6 million. So what that tells me is I think their US revenue will probably surpass their Canadian revenue. I would say probably in the next couple of quarters on huh, this. Range. I would say, yeah, by the end of their next fiscal, for sure. Yeah, I, I didn't realize the scale. I knew it was growing faster, but like I didn't realize the base was like actually somewhat comparable. Well, yeah, because they released in their earnings release, they said the U.S. increased, you know, that percentage. And then I wanted to see, like, was it a really a tiny base? And when I looked at it, I'm like, wow, it's almost getting to 50-50 split at this point. So that's interesting for me. And that's really good news because obviously the U.S. market is not always easy to get into for Canadian companies. And it shows that Aritzia might have some huge potential there. And for the first nine months of their fiscal year, they are actually free cash flow positive for the tune of $302 million, which is a 247% increase versus last year. And that's just massive. And obviously, I love to see that. And that's probably a mix of true growth and base effects. Uh, just thinking back at 2020, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that the base effects have some sort of play here. I mean, think of the, the footprint as well, but I don't think that it's anything 
that you can take away from their execution at this point. No, exactly. So these are really impressive numbers. It'll be, it's one that I think we'll try to just keep an eye on every time they have their earnings. Obviously, it's a Canadian company. A lot of people have mentioned this name when I talk about Lululemon. They say, oh, what about Aritzia? So I think it's one to keep an eye on. And like I said, uh, in the near future, I'll definitely uh, do a, a a deep dive into this and just look at the company where it started and just kind of the company as a whole more than just uh, earnings overlook because it it looks at least for the numbers and what I'm hearing from different people it looks like it has a lot of potential. Yeah, so the the company is broken out into a bunch of like in-house brands inside of their like what they sell online and in their footprint. So they have all of these different in-house brands that the people can choose from. And I know like, dude, that, that, that my, at least people my age, this, this is really popular and it's been really popular for a long time now. Brian Hill, the founder from Vancouver, this is why you're seeing so many like comparisons to Lululemon is like, okay, another Vancouver based clothing company that's breaking ground in the US. Like this could be huge. He opened the first location in 1984. He has been at this for a long time. And it, you know, it's, a re, it's a fairly recent public, like recently publicly traded company. He's been at this forever. And, you know, I think that that's important too. Like it's still run by the founder. I've heard him speak. He has a, like, a very clear mission, which is provide high quality women's clothing at reasonable prices kind of like how we buy stocks, high quality, reasonable prices. And, uh, you know, what's not to like if they can really break ground in the U.S. and keep this e-commerce engine alive? I mean, man, it's already really profitable. It's, it's hard not to like this thing. You know, it's funny just looking and, you know, sometimes I like to just look at stock charts just because it's fun to to look at just to get extra context. But this thing almost was like just breaking even as a uh, an investment for several years. And it's really just uh, started picking up and giving really good returns in the past uh, year or so. When did they go public? It, I think 2016. Shares traded in... 2016. Okay, it's it's longer than I thought. I thought it was like a 2019 IPO. I guess I just didn't pay any attention to it because I mean, man, I up 230 percent since 2019 will definitely get my attention. That's why <laughs> that'll definitely help. But it, I mean, look, it's six six and a half billion in market cap in CAD. Going to you know, I mean, it's it's not a cheap stock, but you're going to get that nice arbitrage from no one really outside of. Canadian firm, uh, Canadian funds really buying this thing in size, which is another advantage, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it might be a good way to get in on this kind of company before it becomes, like you just said, you know, more on the radar in the US. That's right. I guess the, the thing that has kept me out of owning all clothing stocks is that they're clothing stocks. <laughs> and, and this one's a women's clothing stock. So, I, I mean, I have a pretty good insider track now with my girlfriend, being really into fashion and and knowing this product pretty well, but how am I, I mean, before that? I mean, I don't I'm not really in, in the right position to to know if it's a good product or not. Like, I have no idea. The one thing that I you know has kept me out of clothing stocks for so long is how durable are they? You know, that's the question that we always face. And 
You know, it's been the wrong thesis for Lulu, clearly. But how durable is it? You just don't, you just never know. It's really hard to say. Yeah, it's it's much easier to find those that did not stand the test of time than those that do. And I totally agree with that. And that's the only, that's the reason I only have Lulu in terms of a company that does clothing. So food for thought there as well. Yeah. We're trying to fish in the pond where there's some good, high quality, durable fish. And retail clothing has been not necessarily the best pond to fish in. All right. Canadian banks. I, I don't, I called this on the dock here, Simon. Canadian banks are ripping. That is what the title of this segment is. And the reason for that is since December 1st, here's the following returns from the big six Canadian banks. Royal Bank up 18%. TD up 13%. Bank of Nova Scotia up 13%. BMO 13%. CIBC 19%. National Bank 7%. That's only since December 1st. All right, let's look at their trailing one year of returns from today all the way back to January of 2021. Royal Bank, 37%. TD, 38%. BNS, 32%. BMO, 48%. CIBC, 48%. National Bank, 41%. Like as a group, you know, if you equal weighted these things, you're up over 40% on a trailing 12 months in a super low interest rate environment, yeah, housing seems to just go up and up and up. And there's some probably some positive tailwinds for the banks moving forward from a macro perspective. Myself, everyone seems to continue to doubt their ability to compound at the rate that they have been for decades. You know, Canadian bank investors have just been taking W's Year after year, after decade after decade, it is mind-blowing. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we probably should uh, just start investing. Just put everything in Canadian banks, right? That's yeah, it. I'm going all in <laughs> Canadian banks. No, like, I don't think either of us... Well, I own EQB, but do you own any of the big six? No, no, I don't. I used to have TD and I sold it maybe, uh, I think, about a year ago or so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the same I'm in the same boat. And it's not that they're bad businesses. It's more so just like, dude, every time I try to do something with the bank, they feel so incompetent <laughs> that it's like the product is so like so bad at innovation. So anyway, some of them are good, some of them uh continue to get it done and on our stock performance basis, they're all getting it done recently. So uh Applaud to bank shareholders. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I noticed you didn't put Laurentian Bank in there. Is that one getting <laughs> demolished? I don't well, think that's yeah, been a good it's, one. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, kidding. Yeah, they had some scandals and uh, oh. their uh, poor management. I think we talked about them a little bit on the quarterly earning. They they are not doing all that well overall. Still a thirty four. I just checked it. Thirty four percent up on a TTM. That's not bad. But it's been, yeah. but yeah, but like, yeah, I just sniped like a good duration of performance. It's down like 25% on a five-year run. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was just joking around, but now we'll go no, on. No, no, that's fair. You got to zoom out. That's fair. <laughs> exactly. Though. Now we'll move on to BlackRock, which releases uh, 
uh, full year results in Q4 2021. They still don't have their annual report because that usually comes out a bit later. But get ready to hear some really big numbers here because um, their asset under management increased to $10 trillion, which was up 15% from last year. And just wrap your head around that. They have $10 trillion under management. That cr That's crazy. It's just I see those numbers every time and I just get... I can't believe it. And obviously, that was at the end of the reporting date. The average asset under management was actually $9.36 trillion, which was still an increase of 24% year over year. They had huge inflows, so $540 billion in net inflows, which was a 38% increase compared to last year. Their total revenues were $19.3 billion, which was a 20% increase year over year. Diluted EPS was $38.22, an increase of 20% year over year. And they increased their quarterly cash dividend by 18% to $4.88 a share. And I actually looked at this net flow highlight. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this, inflows is basically just shows how much new capital is coming into their investment vehicles. So under their asset at management, but the asset under management can also go up in value. But these is just a new cash that's infused into it. And the reason why I pulled this chart is basically all the different categories except one essentially is positive inflows so there's capitals going by regions if we look at the americas you know asia pacific you look at retail investors everything is going up in inflows the only thing going down is institutional and specifically index uh, funds for institutional but aside from that everything's going up so from you know, I don't know BlackRock, you know, in and out, but from the looks of it, they're firing on all, on all cylinders here. The scale of BlackRock is kind of, it's like one of those things where you realize that you're like, oh my God, they, they actually own a piece of the entire planet and they legit do, like they actually do. 10 trillion AUM is out of control and this is like just by comparison, if I'm like, if I'm going to buy a stock that's like under the financials category, we just talked about Canadian banks. There's no way I would buy a Canadian bank over BlackRock. BlackRock's one of the best companies on the planet. We've written about it extensively on Stratosphere. It's such a big company. The ETF retail trading like into they have the iShares. Like, so for those who are listening, you might be familiar with iShares. They're the big competitor to Vanguard's ETFs. That is huge business. Like, This is a ginormous business. And what is stopping this train from continuing to roll on? I can't even think of many good bear cases at all on BlackRock. And I think that dividend growth investors look no further. Yeah, and I mean, even the institutional side, they're doing really well. Yes, they lost some of the institutional for the index, but they gained it in the active management for institutional. So, I mean, they are still very present in, in the institutional side, especially in Canada, where Vanguard left that institutional side of the Canadian uh, kind of business. But BlackRock is still there. So um, I don't think they'll be... I don't think they'll be dethroned anytime soon as one of the bigger, if not the biggest player in this state in this space. Yeah, and I always find it really interesting to look at like 
the portfolio holdings of people who work in that industry and see if they own some of the holdings like in their industry, like BlackRock, if you work in money management. Just like an example I noticed recently, a little off topic, but similar concept, which is I noticed a lot of doctors own Thermo Fisher. And it's just like, hmm, interesting there. With fund managers and people who work in managing money professionally, I swear they all own BlackRock. And that to me is a really good telling tale of how good this business is. Let's move on to kind of spooky stats around realtor to listings in the GTA, the Grand Toronto area. So I tweeted this out on Saturday, which was no better proxy for a stretch real estate market than many of my peers leaving high paying skilled jobs to become real estate agents. I got tons of replies, people noticing the same thing. Like, oh, my friend was a pharmacist or my friend was an engineer. Now they're working as a real estate agent. I mean, it seems like a pretty good proxy for a stretch market. Now, according to some interesting data that came in in the replies, and my my analyst, Adrian, linked some data as well, that shows that there are 3,000 approximately, this is plus or minus because it's, you know, this is changing every day, but there are approximately 3,000 active listings in the greater Toronto area right now with over 60,000 active realtors. Now, some of them might be doing this part-time, but it does bring up an interesting conversation. Where else in the world is there a 20 to 1 ratio of realtors to listings? I don't know where any where that exists anywhere else. And I think that is a good telling tale of what is going on with real estate around here. Every time we bring it up in this podcast, like, oh, record-breaking numbers, the previous month, or the next month's data just gets crushed by the the following data. It's it's absolutely insane. I mean, I don't know what the data is for Ottawa, but I would venture to say that it's probably a bit out of whack like that as well. And I mean, for me, an indicator too, I don't know anyone who's kind of recently switched, but a good indicator is the amount of pamphlets I get in my mailbox <laughs> about, you know, do you want to sell your home and all that stuff? Like I literally yeah. get, I'm going to guess like about a dozen every week of different realtors trying to make sure they're the ones that will get your listing if you do sell your home. I've definitely seen an increase, that's for sure. It's nothing scientific, but I've seen an increase in the past uh, year, I would say. There's more and more that are doing that kind of advertising. Yeah, I got a couple of just DMs on social media over the last few months of people I went to university, people I haven't talked to since high school. Like, hey, Braden, just want to let you know I got my real estate license. Just want to know if you're buying or selling a home or if you know anyone that's buying or selling a home. It's like, oh no, like <laughs> it's got to be really competitive out there. So I feel bad for people who are like actually killers at selling homes. You know, like actually really solid agents have been doing this for a long time. I feel you with all this like influx of competition with people that just decided to become a real estate agent overnight. That must be so annoying. Well, the the established one, I would think they're probably doing fine, but it's probably the new ones that probably, you know, obviously they're being proactive, but I, I would probably recommend make sure you have some kind of emergency fund backing you up or at least uh, another option as a side gig because it feels like 
there's just not enough uh not enough of a pie for everyone to to get a piece the figures are the the reality is, is that there's just not enough inventory yeah exactly that's just a fact so now we'll move on to uh, JP Morgan earnings. So net revenue was $30.35 billion, which was essentially flat over the past three sequential quarters. Net income was down 11% on a sequential basis and down 40% year over year. It was mainly due to non-interest expenses here. Non-interest expenses would be something like fixed operating costs for banks, more specifically salaries or rent. So that's something that would be a non-interest expense for those who are not familiar with that. And speaking of expenses, JPM uh, CFO Jeremy Barnum said that they will see expenses climb about 8% over this year driven by inflationary pressures. So that that I word comes back again. And this means that the bank will most likely have below its target of 70% of return on capital for the short term. Jamie Dimon, who I'm sure pretty much everyone knows at this point, added that he's not complaining about higher wages and that CEOs should not be crybabies about it. Um, <laughs> did you see that? His quote about the CEOs being crybabies. I actually haven't, but it's just not surprising at all. I'm already picturing him saying it right now. Yeah, exactly. And he said that higher wages are a good thing for the people seeing those wages going up. On this last point, I find this a bit interesting that Jamie Dimon would actually go there because I did come over a study this weekend conducted late last year to that show that um, wages are going up for frontline workers, but they wanted to study whether they're actually better off economically since the start of the pandemic because we all know wages increases are great but it means nothing if your cost of living is going faster so i thought it was interesting for him to mention that and i'll definitely be doing a segment on this uh this research that was done because i think it's interesting to to look at to see yes we're seeing wage increases but is it actually resulting in a better quality of life or more economic power for people? I suspect that probably not, but I haven't finished uh, looking at this study. One positive thing that the bank should benefit from is definitely higher interest rates in the near term. And he did add that, Jamie Dimon, that the economy continues to do quite well despite headwinds related to the Omicron variant, inflation, and supply chain uh, bottlenecks. And definitely the rising interest rates should be something that will be a bit of a tailwind for uh, for banks in general. I would say banks that are lending banks because obviously there's different types of bank but banks that their main operations is lending typically as interest rates go up their margin so the spread between uh, the interest that they pay out to people that deposit money with them and the one that they receive from lending out the money increases so that's typically why it's better for banks when interest rates go up the last statement that Jamie Diamond said was also interesting because there's data that came out that retail sales actually dropped 1.9% in December in the US, which was more than expected. And expectations were actually that sales would be flat. And it's hard to say what would have caused it. Um, it could have been a slew of different things, but I just wanted to add that data because um, I'm sure Jamie Dimon is aware of that and I know he wants to show a positive outlook for the economy. But even someone like Jamie Dimon, if you just take bits and pieces, sometimes it can be good to put things into context because retail sales dropping like that could have been a slew of different things. Could be, you know, maybe consumers 
just decided that they didn't want to purchase because things were starting to get too expensive. Maybe consumer did all their purchases earlier in the fall or late summer because they heard about all these supply chains bottlenecks happening, supply chain issues. So they wanted to get ahead of the curve. And it could just be, you know, that people just decided to slow down their consumption in general for no apparent reason. So I think it's always important to put things a bit more in context here. It will be interesting to see what type of data comes out from Canada because we've talked about about uh, U.S. data just here, but uh, it will be coming out in the next couple of weeks, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it in one of our Thursday releases. This is the beauty of J.P. Morgan earnings calls because <laughs> you get Jamie Diamond with hot takes and uh, lots of comment far beyond just the results of J.P. Morgan's business. And so that's why so many people tune into it, not only because I think, you know, being the largest bank, it is a good proxy for the U.S. economy, but also some interesting hot takes, whether some of them are outlandish or not. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. What I will say is that he's clearly a very smart guy. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I, I know, like, I'm sure he knows what he's doing when he comes out with these hot takes. And I would just love having like a Q&A of just him and Charlie Munger. <laughs> oh, yeah. I and bet. just like people asking them questions. I'm sure some of the the hot takes would be amazing. And can you imagine the answer they would give on Bitcoin? Those two? Oh, no. <laughs> Isn't Diamond coming around to it? I don't know. Well, he said they're offering it because their clients want it, but he's still not <laughs> yeah, a believer right, exactly. in it. So uh, it would just be as a, like obviously the Bitcoin issue was has already been like you know something of uh, you know they've been very outspoken Jamie Diamond and uh, Charlie Munger, but oh, just Munger, as a whole, for sure, yeah, they are not shy. I'll just say that. So it would be very entertaining to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Munger's. 97 right like didn't he just turn 98 yeah he just turned 98 he's born on on new year's day he's born on january 1st 1924 he's currently 98 years old so like when you're 98 dude you don't care you're like you just say whatever comes across whatever comes across the top of your brain is what comes out i i love that uh last one on the slate today which is Taiwan Semiconductor, ticker TSM. They did have their fourth quarter report released on the 13th of January. Now, ticker TSM or TSMC, which stands for Taiwan Semiconductor, this is the chip-making behemoth. They reported their Q4 with increased revenue of 21.2% and profits up 16.4%. Not bad numbers for a company at this scale. Uh, these are really good results. It's also worth mentioning that earnings, you know, profits were up 6.4% quarter over quarter from Q3 of 2021, which is, again, a very solid number for a company this big. Net profit margin was fairly consistent year over year at 38%, which is so good. Like, not too shabby for a heavy manufacturer like TSMC. The demand for the five nanometer chips is really strong. They posted their like supplementary materials that I was looking at just before the call. It's an interesting graph that shows the mix and the shift in revenue mix from the 7 nanometer to the demand for 5 nanometers. Now, TSM is a perfect example of a stock that did pretty much nothing last year, not really based on financial reasons. You know, like it it did nothing while the 
well, like big tech companies went to new highs and the, the demand for chips was at all time highs. You know, there's all this good stuff happening for it. But there's like this geopolitical concerns with Taiwan Semiconductor. And this is fair. Like, I'm not going to comment on that. I, I'm no expert in it. But at the end of the day, financial results matter. Execution matters. And good results cannot go unappreciated forever. So it has already been a terrific early start in 2022 for, for TSM with not only their Q4 results coming out in early January, but also their stock price. Like you can only deliver like great quarter after great quarter after great quarter until the market's like, all right, fine. Like we're willing to uh, we're willing to appreciate the stock because yeah, there's geopolitical concerns, but if you look at the fundamentals of the business and what TSM offers as a business, their moat like being the basically the only name in town for foundry, especially for these big players. You know, it was just a matter of time that shareholders actually start to see some good returns. Yeah, I mean, it's like the the power is definitely in their hands when it comes to the chip manufacturing because it's so concentrated, right? Aside from them, who else is there in that in that space? Like pretty much Intel does foundry, but that's it. And they've had, you know, their chips have not uh, been the best performing ones recently. Yeah. And I know they're investing heavily uh, right now. But on the geopolitical front, not to get into that, but I don't know if you, I don't think I've ever told you that. I was, uh, for three months, I went to uh, study, I went for a program exchange for three months in the summer in Taipei in 2007, just before the financial crisis, uh, just to study Mandarin. My Mandarin what? is not, oh yeah. My Mandarin Dude, is not I, I've great. I've been doing this show with you for so long. And like, as soon as I figure, like, I feel like I know you extremely well. You're like, oh, yeah, I like learned Mandarin in 2007. Yeah, I mean, it was, I'm just saying that because, well, first of all, my Mandarin is not great. I can, you know, do some basic, basic stuff. I was getting pretty good because when you're, uh, you're in Taipei, as soon as you get out of the financial district, like, do no people English. do not speak English? Yeah, At least not yeah. back then. And the reason I wanted to mention the geopolitical here is, you know, it was an issue back then as well. I remember people would talk to me locals and we chat about it. And it's really fascinating. And it actually goes back way before the Second World War. If you want to learn more about it and just learn the history of the Taiwan, of the Taiwanese people, the Taiwan Strait, and then it shifted after the Second World War. Um, it's very interesting. The Japanese occupied that space for, for time. Um, as well so if you want to read up on that i know it's not investing really but if you wanted to get a better sense of the whole history behind it um you'll have to dig uh, quite a while back to to really understand the, the bigger picture that's fascinating and i know that i know there's tons of history buffs on who listen to this podcast i know that for a fact and getting some of that context is probably going to be pretty helpful if you were to own this stuff and we, I talked about ASML last week on the pod, right? And they do the lithography and they sell it to TSM. But what happens is, is you have this like wild list of tier suppliers to get to the point where you actually have foundry capacity and TSM just dominates. They, they are the foundry capacity. You know, like it's not like chip maker and TSM, like they're the same thing because it, TSM just has all of the capacity and uh, it's a behemoth of a business. And I think that it's been trading at a really attractive price for quite some time now. 
and they continue to get it done. They really do. I, I was, I'm surprised at the margins on it, to be honest, given everything that goes into it. A net profit margin of 38% is really solid. I guess it, it kind of is a testament to the complexity of what they're producing and what investment is required into producing those. And, and let's be honest, they've been in that business for a long time, so they know what they're doing as well. So Yeah, they have been doing it for a long time. And so they're the name in town. Anyways, uh, that does it for this week, guys. Today was January 17th. We are going to be coming at you twice a week for all of 2022 and uh i'm really i'm really pumped so for those who may be new to the show we do mondays and thursday releases it comes out early in the morning so it's always there for you if you do your morning commute if you've been listening to the show for a while give us a a rating of five stars on spotify and apple it's available on both platforms now so like seriously it helps us grow the podcast i shared some some stats on our twitter the other day cdn underscore investing which is the twitter for the podcast of just like kind of the slow month over month growth of the show and like while that's great and all it relies on the virality of you guys sharing the show so if you think so that someone else could benefit or even just would like the entertainment we talk about canadian things too as well which is a bit nuanced then uh, go ahead and do that. It really helps support the show. If you haven't checked out Stratosphere, go to stratosphereinvesting.com. I really think you'll like it. Find a lot of the data we're talking about here on the podcast as well. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.